Hello, and welcome to Queering Desi. I'm your host, Priya. As a South Asian queer non-binary person, I have learned a lot on my journey of self-acceptance and building community. So in each episode, I will bring you a slice of South Asian LGBTQ life with a guest who exemplifies what it means to be who you are and to live your truth. I like to create a safe and open discussion with our guests and listeners. So if the topics on this podcast are controversial, please know these opinions are of the guest and host, and we don't mean any offense. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Queering Desi listeners. This is Priya. I want to take a moment before we get to the episode to wish you all a happy Pride. All month long, we'll be bringing you brand new episodes and content, so be sure to follow us on social media at Queering Daisy. Hit subscribe on iTunes or catch us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific time on Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian radio station. We're also happy to announce our first new batch of merchandise. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, tanks, mugs, totes, and more in our online store if you want to rep Queering Daisy out in the world. We have a lot more stories to cover in the coming weeks and months, so we hope you'll consider supporting us, either through our online store or by signing up on our Patreon. You can find out more about both on our website, www.queeringdaisy.com. We appreciate your support always, and we are always open to feedback, so if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. So without much further ado, let's get to the show. All right. Welcome to Queering Daisy. This week on the podcast, we have Samir Jha, who I'm so excited to speak to. Thank you for being on the show, Samir. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Can you take a few minutes to just introduce yourself and your pronouns So, for people who may not be familiar with your work? Yeah. So uh, my name is Samir. I'm a 17-year-old activist that works with the LGBTQ community. I use they, them pronouns. That's been a recent switch for me as I've come into mm-hmm. my gender identity. I work a lot with schools and with education to try to make schools a safer place for queer and trans youth because I've had some pretty bad and pretty good experiences with different schools and their tolerance and acceptance policies and programs around queer identities. And so I've faced a lot of bullying that went kind of unnoticed by the school. And I've also been to a school that had an amazing GSA, a thriving queer community, and a general culture of acceptance. And so I've really wanted to make sure that all students have that opportunity and have that chance. So a lot of my work has been around education and then obviously the South Asian community as I'm South Asian and being in that community has kind of shown me a lot of the biases and a lot of the kind of hidden elements of the community's perception of queer people and trans people, as well as a lot of really amazing queer history and queer figures that are in the Desi community. And so I've kind of worked to bring those to light and talk more about queer identities and queer people within the South Asian community, especially in my home area of the Bay Area. That's wonderful. I mean, I've followed your work for a long time, and I, I will talk about the book as well. But I want to start with like the what you mentioned about the education system, like especially for your age, but also the idea of focusing on educational systems. Can you talk a little bit about that, like as much as you're comfortable of what kind of drove that and, and what kind of change you hope to see and why you think that's important in terms of activism? 
Yeah, so I really feel that the education system is one place where we can really make change for queer and trans youth because the home environment and cultural communities, those are a little bit harder to change. Those require a little bit more awareness spreading and long-term efforts and community engagement. But I feel like the education system, you know, every child has the right to go to school and feel safe and feel accepted. And many states have laws around that idea, around those policies, you know, anti-bullying policies. Even some states have like pro-LGBTQ curriculum or health education. And so I feel like it's easier to make change when the infrastructure kind of has that opening. Of course, a lot of schools don't, like even with those laws passed and even with those instructions, don't really follow that. So it's been a, a hard journey to kind of get schools to understand why it's important to support queer and trans youth and to actually engage in supporting them. But I do feel like there's a little bit more of a a kind of space for that because, you know, student clubs like GSAs or, you know, health education that talks about queer identities are great places for students to learn about themselves and their identities and their peers, even if they're not getting that information in their home communities and their cultural communities. And so definitely that's where I found out that I was queer, you know, in working with um, my school's GSA and supporting my friends and being an ally to them, I kind of realized that I was queer. And if it weren't for those kinds of programs that created safe spaces for queer students, I wouldn't have come to that realization and I would have still kind of had a lot of internalized homophobia. So that's kind of why I think it's important. And I do think that there is, you know, the possibility for change. And we're seeing a lot of students all across the country and even across the world as, you know, the internet is becoming more and more widespread and sharing more and more information. Students are are feeling more and more empowered to make that kind of change in their schools, whether it's about queer and trans students' rights or about gun violence or about, you know, a myriad of other things. So I think that, you know, the young people really have a lot of power and we can work to make that change, whether it's GSAs, whether it's um, standing up in school board meetings and trying to get inclusive health education passed, you know, whether it's looking for supportive teachers and asking the school to hire more supportive and inclusive teachers. I think that we can do it a lot more easily than, for example, you know, the hard work that is changing a cultural perception of queer people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about like that experience for you? You mentioned like having that as a safe space and being able to like come into your own by being an ally to others. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience and just how that kind of space fueled you and empowered you to take that fight um, beyond, you know, yourself as well? Yeah, so I was a very, very unaware uh, freshman coming into high school. I firmly believed that I was straight. As I mentioned, I'd faced a lot of bullying in the past just around, you know, the general homophobia, like that's so gay being thrown around to, you know, attacks on me because I was more feminine, um, even without coming out at all. Mm. So that kind of made me really believe that I was straight and kind of push away any thoughts of queerness or transness. And I kind of changed schools from the middle school where I'd been bullied to a much more diverse school um, in a different city that kind of drew from a lot more different communities, um, whereas my middle school was mostly Asian and South Asian. And so there's a lot of, you know, cultural biases that we'll probably talk about later. But with that diversity brought a lot of 
different identities. So I, from day one, there were students who openly identified with they, them pronouns, who identified as all different sexualities and gender identities. And, you know, a lot of them happened to be my friends. And so I attended GSA meetings to support them and even helped uh, put on my first day of silence in support of the queer community without really understanding that I myself was queer. And through that process, kind of hearing other people's stories that very much reflected my own, whether it was the bullying for, you know, being feminine or thoughts that I had or kind of experiences that I I had with my own, you know, gender identity, I kind of realized that a lot of their experiences aligned with mine and I might identify as queer. And it was very hard for me to accept that. But I think that having so many queer friends and even faculty and a supportive space where I could come and listen and then start discussing and talking and sharing and figuring things out was amazing for me because without that, I would have felt a lot more alone. And I think being that alone, that that was how I'd gotten up until freshman year without really having to deal with my sexuality or gender identity because I'd kind of just pushed it away. Mm-hmm. But being in a space that actively supported and kind of had to rewrite all of the negative assumptions and stereotypes that I had about the queer community that I got throughout my childhood, that kind of made all the difference for me. And I don't know what my life would be like if I didn't go to a school that was so supportive and have friends that were so supportive and, you know, discover who I am because now that activism and this identity is like so much a part of my life and I feel so much more free because of it. But I think that it really saved my life. That's a huge thing. And I mean, I I hear you talk about it. And I imagine like, in terms of relatability, like, I feel like the exploration of sexuality versus gender identity, especially in the South Asian community, is really, as you mentioned, it comes with all of these stereotypes and biases. In coming to my own, I had to kind of not only unpack that, but it was a really painful and also like kind of eye-opening experience to realize that like, As a community, a lot of us didn't know any better. Like, that's just, like, the stuff that gets perpetuated within our communities. It becomes so ingrained that it's hard to kind of call that out and figure that out. And as someone who was also bullied, like, I'm curious about your experience in terms of facing the gender stereotypes of the South Asian community specifically and the stereotypes around queerness and transness. And if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I went to a school um, for most of my life up until middle school. That was pretty much 90% um, Asian and South Asian. And my neighborhood, my family, friends, you know, everyone that I hung out with was mostly South Asian. I think that was an amazing experience for me growing up in America, but still having that cultural background and immersion and other people who looked like me and practiced the same things that I did and had the same like festivals that I did. That was really awesome. But it also came with a lot of stereotypes, as you said, and, you know, negative kind of perceptions about the queer community that I didn't even know that I was getting because I thought it was, you know, normal. Mm -hmm. And so things like um, being bullied for or having to hide the fact that I played with dolls as a kid, you know, my parents were mostly kind of supportive of me exploring different things, but they were very worried that I was going to face a lot of bullying, which I did. So they, you know were kind of hesitant to let me fully express my gender identity and and explore everything I wanted to, except for, you know, kind of in hiding personally 
on my own. It was something that I felt like I had to be ashamed of or had to hide. Like, I liked it. I liked playing with dolls. I liked, you know, wearing a Cinderella costume and, you know, the glass slippers. But I couldn't, you know, do that in public, which meant something was wrong with it, you know? Mm. It was something that I had to kind of hide from the rest of the world. And that, you know, doesn't send a, a great signal. And then the bullying that I did end up facing for being feminine kind of some some of like the randomest things, but like I think there's a lot of fear of, of you know guys being feminine because I think in in South Asian culture queerness is just so looked down upon. You know, up until very recently in India, it was illegal, and so any kind of behavior that was in any way gay or like you know stereotypically feminine was like shunned. And so I had a very high singing voice, and I loved to sing, and that was. A, like source of constant bullying. I remember even like getting thrown a jar of like in bio class, we had like jars of tarantulas um, and I was so afraid of spiders and that was seen as like weak and feminine. And so people would like throw this at me and I'd be forced to catch them or they would break and the spider would fall out and that would be mm-hmm. even more scary. And so just like, you have to be strong. You have to put on this mask. And that's what I ended up doing is kind of falling in line with the gender roles that I was supposed to play and be this like, you know, strong, silent figure that, you know, laughed at all the horrible jokes that people made and, you know, was mean to people when I was supposed to be mean to people. And it was actually a terrible place to be in, not only for me, but for other people, because I wasn't being a good person. I was being like a stereotype, you know, trying to show how masculine I was and how cool and, you know, normal I was. And so I definitely did negatively impact a lot of people and even fall into, you know, homophobic bullying myself, which is terrible. But I do think that's pretty common for a lot of queer people is when they are grappling with their identity and they don't, you know, have the supportive environment. They're told that what they're doing is wrong and who they are is wrong. Then they end up, you know, being bullies themselves or being homophobic themselves as a kind of way to internalize that. And so that was really tough for me because I always thought I I was a very, you know, sweet and gentle and, you know, calm person, but that was feminine and I couldn't do that. I couldn't be like that. And I think that especially in the South Asian community, one of the biggest issues is we don't talk enough about sexuality and gender identity. And so as all this was happening, I just didn't know that there were any other options. And I didn't know that this was something that was wrong. And I thought it was what you were supposed to do. Um, So even as like my parents saw this change in me and tried to work with me to kind of become a better person and a kinder person, I thought that, you know, I had to be one way around my parents and one way around my friends because, you know, that's just how things were. And I feel like if we have that conversation about sexuality, about gender identity, about gender roles, and the fact that there are a, a wide variety of things that any person of any gender or sex can do and can enjoy and can act like, that would have kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, what my friends were telling me, what the input I was getting from society was wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I agree so much with that. We don't, you know, in the South Asian communities, don't talk about sexuality and gender often enough. And I mean, I I relate to that so much. I think that for me, if I think back on like this idea of like, how did I kind of realize what it even was? Like, I didn't have the words for it, right? Like, I didn't even know what it was to me. I just knew something was different about me and I could never place 
you know, my finger on it. And I think a large part of that is what you're saying, right? Is like not talking about it enough. But I always think also think of like representation and visibility, right? Like I could never I wasn't in a school environment, definitely, but even in the South Asian community, like I didn't know anyone that was gay. I didn't like or like openly queer or trans. Like I just didn't know I didn't see it. I didn't hear about it. And the the very few media representations we saw, you know, if I saw in Bollywood were like very negative, like you're saying for males who were feminine, it was always like there's a sidekick or the joke. And I always think about that visibility. Was that something that you you faced as well or kind of confronted upon in your journey at, at various points about like this visibility aspect and this representation in terms of the extension of talking about gender and sexuality? Yeah, I definitely think that's a really big issue. The first queer people that I ever met in person were at my high school, and none of them were South Asian. And I was the first South Asian person to come out that I knew of um, in my community. And I do think that's, you know, a really big issue because if you don't see people who look like you in person or even, you know, on screen, as you mentioned, with Bollywood movies, but also, you know, in Hollywood, you know, when I was growing up, the very little queer representation that did exist was mostly, you know, white men, white gay men. And a lot of other queer people don't see themselves in white gay men. And so I do think that it's a really big issue when you don't have anyone who looks like you that you can kind of relate to in other ways that are also identify as queer or trans that can kind of like signal to you, you know, hey, we're alike in some ways. And also, you know, I'm queer, I'm trans, like it's okay. Because I think a lot of South Asian people coming to America kind of feel like queerness is a Western thing. Mm-hmm. My mom grew up in Pakistan and less than 1% of people in Pakistan support queer identities. And obviously, you know, people aren't openly coming out there. And so when you come to America and there's some queer representation or there's some queer people, it's easy to see that as a Western thing, um, especially in that transition. And so I think a lot of immigrants also bring that kind of idea that, you know, in our community, it's not the case. In our community, that doesn't exist. That's, you know, for other communities. Similarly to, I think, how we have an issue of like mental health stigma or other things like that, where it's, you know, it's not in our community. We don't have that problem of queerness. And I think that having some kind of representation to balance that out would have been amazing. And even now, you know, in Bollywood, there's still very, very few instances of queer identities and queer representation. Even in mainstream media, I have yet to see a South Asian queer person in mainstream media. And so I think that it it still is a very big issue. And, And a lot of what I've been doing is kind of going to national organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, um, GLSEN, the Tyler Clementi Foundation, and being like the only South Asian person working with them and kind of being open and public about my identity so that other South Asian youth across the country can see that there are other people like them and there are queer people who look like them. And it's not just you know, a Western thing. I think that visibility is incredibly important. And that was also one of the main reasons why I chose to come out and be as open as I did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going off of that, I also wonder about not only visibility as well, but I also think about like the idea of what we're supposed to look like, right? In air quotes, look like, because I think not having that representation or not being able to form that identity in my own mind of like, what does that even look like? It also really revolves around these gender expectations or biases around 
what like beauty is and what body is. And you mentioned mental health and that really factors into it as well. But this whole perception of like body and like I dress masculine. So it's kind of like if I want to go to a South Asian event, you know, and I'm wearing a kurta or I'm wearing a tux, just throwing off that idea of like, well, what does gender presentation also look like? Is that something that that you've experienced as well? Yeah, um, that's definitely been the case for me as well. It's kind of similar to when I came out as non-binary, where since there's no representation or no visibility of how this identity could look, for me, I felt like there was no really path to follow. Whereas, you know, when I came out as queer, it was like, okay, I kind of understand this. Sexuality is talked about enough, at least in the mainstream media, that I kind of understand this. But especially with gender identity for me and gender presentation, you know, being non-binary, that's already kind of outside of traditional gender roles. So there was no path for me to follow or no specific things that I had to adhere to, which is which was very freeing in that sense. But I think in the South Asian community, when I'm looking at what does being queer and trans and South Asian look like, I didn't have anything to kind of look at. And I was a lot more scared, you know, being non-binary in my school community, I could kind of experiment more and worry less about how people would react. And because everyone was pretty accepting, you know, I could experiment with wearing makeup and wearing dresses. And I'd done that since um, last year. But in the South Asian community, it was a lot harder because I felt like I was representing like not only just being alone in my experiences of being queer and trans in South Asian, but representing queer and trans people for the South Asian community. And, you know, the way that I presented and the way I looked was kind of forging this perception, this new perception of what queer and trans people in my community were or how people in my community kind of understood that because I was, for a lot of my family friends, the only queer person that they knew. And so I think that I was much more scared to kind of fully explore and experiment with my gender identity and expression in the South Asian community. And so I continued to just wear kurtas and, you know, dress kind of masculine up until actually my prom, my senior prom, which just recently happened, where I wore an anarchy dress for prom. Me and a bunch mm-hmm. of other South Asian friends at my school, kind of, we all dressed in traditional clothing together. And that was the first time that I really felt free to explore not just my South Asian, you know, heritage and culture, but within the context of me being trans and exploring my gender identity and expression within the South Asian community, which I felt kind of like I couldn't do for so long. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, The part about identifying and coming out kind of on this journey with both sexuality and gender identity, could you talk about, like, your journey with that? I mean, I I always say on this show, like, I know that coming out has this, like, really white mainstream LGBT narrative of being like this one thing. But it's it's so much more than that. But it's also a lot more layered for our communities. And I'm sure our listeners would love to know a little bit more as much as you're comfortable sharing about just that kind of process for you, not only in terms of how did you kind of figure out what it was and what it meant to be and how to what to call it and things like that, but like, how did that kind of progress for you and what was that journey like for you? Yeah, I, it was definitely a very long journey. It was very complicated and had lots of twists and turns. I first came out as anything at the end of freshman year. Um, this was like three years ago. And I came out to my parents as bi. And 
that I think was largely due to the fact that there was still a lot of internalized homophobia and kind of heteronormativity where my whole life I thought I was straight and I imagined myself as straight because that was the only option. And so when I kind of discovered that I could be, you know, some form of queer, I felt like it was bi. But in the end, you know, after, you know, coming out to my parents and then kind of working with, you know, that internalized homophobia and and figuring things out more, I kind of settled on queer as my sexuality. And to me, that kind of just means that I know that I'm not straight, but I am still kind of figuring things out beyond that. And I also think sexuality is very fluid and I'm still pretty young. My sexuality could change and could develop and could, you know, I, I haven't fully understood it yet. And I don't think I ever will really. But I feel like, you know, the fact that I, I started out with like bi and then I actually, you know, in the middle went all the way to gay and then now I'm settling on queer. I feel like that is very common for a lot of people in my generation where we kind of settle in the end on an identity that is not as labeled, is not as like strict and firm because I think people in my generation are also kind of realizing that sexuality is a lot more fluid and and can change and also that as a young person, we don't have to understand it completely yet. So I think that that giving advice to any person who's trying to figure out their own identity is you don't need to have, A, you don't need to have a label at all. You don't need to put anything on it. But B, even if you do want to call it something or want to come out as something, it doesn't have to be a firm sexuality or gender identity that details every single piece of who you are and fits you exactly. You know, it can be a kind of more encompassing term like queer. As for my gender identity, I think that was a much longer process because once I came out as queer, I kind of felt like, okay, now I'm more of like this stereotype of like, you know, a gay guy who's more feminine and I can like experiment with nail polish and makeup and stuff like that. And that fits, you know, kind of within what Western society calls gay. But then I kind of started to realize that that's not true to kind of who I was. I wasn't a guy. And so I kind of started to explore my gender identity throughout my junior year of high school and figure out, you know, what is a very long process to kind of understand, not just, you know, what my identity was, but what I really wanted to present as and what I wanted to look like and, you know, how I wanted to show who I was to the world. And, you know, it took a lot of trying things out and doing things that were maybe more uncomfortable and then picking things that I liked and rejecting things that I didn't like. You know, I used at times different names and pronouns and different styles of dress and eventually settled on the fact that I was non-binary. And it's still been a process. You know, as I mentioned, I, I very recently came to the understanding that, you know, I wanted to use they, them pronouns. And I, I think that, you know, again, gender identity, just like sexuality, is very fluid and it could change. And I'm very open to the fact that, you know, these identities that I have right now could change and probably will change. And I'm still figuring things out. And so I like to keep it a little bit more vague. So like queer and non-binary. That's such a great way to look at it. And I almost wish I had that growing up in terms of like not feeling like a, it had to be any kind of specific label, but also the idea that like it can change. I think that's also part of this like 
mainstream coming out narrative that can be problematic for people is this idea that like, okay, well, even if coming out, okay, coming out is like more than one, you know, instance or thing, but that this identity is static. And so that when you're out in the world or you're you're visible, that you're representing one thing or the way that people know you to be one thing is kind of how you've remained. So I'm I'm really inspired to hear you talk about it that way because I do think that that allows so much more freedom, especially in our communities, when when labels can also just be harmful even once coming out and, and even in somewhat safe spaces, like that can still be really harmful to latch onto that one identity. So I'm glad to hear you talk about that. Yeah, thank you. There's so many different areas I want to explore with you, but I would love to know more about the Empathy Alliance. Could you tell our listeners about how that kind of came about and what the idea was behind it? Yeah, so the Empathy Alliance is the nonprofit that I started uh, when I was 14, very soon after coming out. And it was kind of addressing the the fact that I was very lucky to have a supportive environment and parents who were willing to kind of grapple with my identity and eventually come to terms with it. And I felt like, you know, there were still so many people, especially in the South Asian community, a lot of my friends who were unable to come out because of, you know, their friends at school or their parents or the fact that they, you know, didn't have a place to talk about and explore their identity. And I felt like, you know, I was gifted with such an amazing group of people and community and space that I wanted to do something to kind of help all the other queer people that didn't have the same privileges. So it kind of started out as me working with my old middle school and school district where I was bullied to kind of change things for students that were going to be in my shoes and hopefully wouldn't experience the same things that I did. And so I worked with the counselor and principal to start a GSA, to get inclusive library books, and then to eventually get inclusive health education that talked about and dealt with queer and trans identities and kind of gave some information about queer people to the student body so that, A, if you're, you know, struggling with your identity, you can kind of understand that, you know, adults in your school support or understand queer and trans people and get more information about queer and trans identities. And then B, if you are someone who is like the people who bullied me, who really didn't understand what was wrong with bullying someone for their perceived sexuality or gender identity, that having that kind of systematic or institutionalized teaching of queer and trans topics and identities and issues would kind of show them that this is something that is, you know, not a source of bullying or a fun joke, but it is, you know, people's actual identities and that the school understands that and will support queer and trans students. And I feel like just spreading that awareness and having that education is really important because it just makes everyone more able to come to the conversation with a fuller understanding of what they're talking about. And so that was kind of what I started out with, with Empathy Alliance. And eventually I kind of went more and more um, national with partnering with other LGBTQ organizations, as I mentioned, national ones like the Human Rights Campaign and Glisten and the Tyler Clemente Foundation, as well as doing speaking events, workshops, other things to kind of get my message out there. And Uh, eventually writing a book called Read This, Save Lives. That's a kind of a teacher's guide 
on how to make your school more supportive, more inclusive of queer and trans people, whether you're a beginner or, you know, someone who completely understands the queer community, what are some steps you can take to make your school a better space for queer and trans students? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the book. I mean, I think that that is such an important step of your journey because I think for me as someone who knew that that didn't exist but didn't realize that like that was so necessary and and such an important tool it's been so great to kind of see that float around in the world because like you said it's not only an institutional thing that needs to start to change but like to actually have a guide like that in your hands and able to kind of refer to that gives people a more concrete way of starting to change those systemic kind of things so, yeah, I mean, I I love the book and I want to plug it again for people that may not know it. Read This Save Lives. I think um, it was such an important step and I'm I'm so glad that you wrote it. I, can you talk a little bit about like what it was like to write that and what your process was? And I mean, we know why it was important, but why did it feel important to your journey as well? Yeah, I think one of the main reasons why I actually like set out to write it was that there was nothing else on the market that was written by a queer youth. And I felt like it's really important if we're going to be talking about how to support queer and trans youth to actually have that perspective of someone who is in school dealing with these things and knows what the current environment is like, knows what the current generation is like. And so I felt like I needed to put my own story out there. And I definitely wanted my story to be in it, not just the tips and advice and, you know, definitions, but also interweaving it with my own experiences to kind of show these stories are real, that, you know, these impacts are real. It's not just some imaginary community that you're going to be helping or some imaginary students that haven't come out yet that you don't really know of, but real people that you're going to be impacting with your messages, with your support. And I think in writing it, I kind of wanted to make it as accessible as it could be and as kind of easy to understand as it could be because a lot of educators and a lot of just people in general around the country want to help or understand that queer identities and queer people are important, but don't really have an understanding of, you know, really what the community is, who they're going to be helping if they take action, what, you know, the identities are. And so I felt like, you know, even just giving some kind of understanding of, you know, this is the LGBTQ community, these are some kinds of identities that, you know, people have, and these are some ways that students are bullied or impacted because of their identities. Just that kind of baseline knowledge could motivate someone who was kind of ambivalent or unsure to take actionable steps. And then I really wanted the steps to be ranging from, you know, if they have no school support, the parents are completely unsupportive, the school board is completely unsupportive, what can they still do? All the way to, you know, they already have inclusive, you know, health curriculums and GSAs. What can they do after that to make the school even more supportive and inclusive? Because I, I feel like there's such a wide range of climates in this country for LGBTQ rights. There are some places where, you know, it's almost not an issue anymore. I would say like not not an issue, but, you know, it's a lot easier, like the high school that I just graduated from. And then there are some where, you know, if you are queer, that's almost like a death sentence and you will face attacks and harassment um, and it's pretty much impossible to come out. And I wanted this guide to address and be helpful to 
a wide range of teachers because I've, you know, even just in the small bubble of the Bay Area, experienced and seen a wide, wide, wide range of school climates, even in such a seemingly inclusive or supportive place. So I know that things can be very difficult, even if you have state laws, even if you have the support of like your city, the school climate can be very difficult to change. So I wanted to make it, you know, as easy to understand, as simple as possible. To your question about, you know, how that impacted my own journey, I think that writing out my story and kind of reflecting back on all of the, you know, moments from pretty much my childhood up until now and, you know, struggling to understand some of the bullying that I faced and why that happened and, you know, a lot of things that I I kept under wraps or, or kept, you know, hidden away in my mind because I didn't want to deal with it. I kind of had to, to re-examine that and come to terms with the fact that, like, you know, I did face a lot of bullying. It was very difficult, but it kind of reflected a larger issue within our community. And I think I have a lot more sympathy and compassion and empathy for the kids that bullied me after writing this book and and realizing that, you know, it's not just them and it's not just their words and actions. It's the product of a lot of systems and societal norms and things that are out of their control as well. So I think that that did help me kind of come to terms with what I faced and grow from it. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that at the end, and I want to kind of go off of that. But the societal messages and biases that we receive, especially in the South Asian community, as we talked about a little bit, is so ingrained. But coming into your journey and and maybe in the duration or after this book, like, can you talk a little bit about like the community aspect? Like, I know um, your mom had mentioned that if they had questions, you you kind of came back to them with resources or things for them as they were going on on their journey of acceptance. Like, can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you in terms of facing other folks? Like coming into your own is one thing, but then when you have to kind of bring that out, even beyond the educational institution you were in, where you felt like finally you were supported. What about the community at large, where specifically in a South Asian context, like either family or community? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I definitely think that it was very difficult for me to, as I was still discovering who I was and my own identities, how to explain that to other people and how to kind of, again, as I mentioned earlier, sort of be the face of queer people for a lot of Mm. my friends and community. And I had to kind of figure out how to approach talking to people about queerness, you know, my family and family friends. And I also held events for the South Asian community in um, the Bay Area in Fremont to come and ask questions and learn about, you know, my story and talk to my parents as well after they'd kind of come to terms with things. But, you know, in talking to all those people, I, I had to kind of show that I was sure of myself, you know, because there's a lot of a lot of people that think, oh, you're too young. You know, this is when I was 14 and 15. You're too young. You don't know who you are yet. You know, again, this is a Western thing. You're just you know, saying this stuff because, or you're just, you know, identifying like this because you go to a school that has a lot of, you know, people who were born here and that's their kind of thing. That's their identities that you're bringing to our community. And so I kind of had to project that I was a lot more sure of myself than I was, you know, obviously I was queer, but I had to project that I knew what I was talking about and I had everything figured out. And that was 
hard for me as someone who very recently came out and was still grappling with things and still trying to completely understand who I was. Additionally, I had to face people who, you know, I don't think any anyone that I talked to really was trying to hurt me or invalidate my identity, but a lot of people who just didn't really understand what they were saying or didn't understand the ways it could be harmful or hurtful, including my parents at times, and had to deal with that, but, you know, respond to it in a way that was kind, in a way that was kind of more understanding because these are people who are still trying to understand me and still, and, you know, making the effort to support me in, in whatever way they are. So I think that as the only person that I knew who was out in the South Asian community, I, I did feel a lot of pressure to be kind of like the perfect queer person. And as I mentioned earlier, that that meant that I suppressed a lot of my gender identity for a while because I felt like, you know, okay, it's fine that I'm like the queer kid, but if I'm like the queer kid with, you know, rainbow nails and makeup, like that's a little bit too far. That's a little bit too much for the community to handle. And people might look at that and not be able to relate to it or understand it and push it away because of all these ingrained issues that we have with men being feminine in our community. And so, you know, I think that the South Asian community has a lot to work on, but but also, you know, for all the, the things that I had to kind of experience or give up or be put through, I felt like I could make a difference and I felt like I I did in some way help a lot of my my community, my friends, my family friends, even, you know, random strangers that I didn't know in the South Asian community understand queer people and possibly that meant that you know, their kids would be freer to be who they are, or they would be more accepting of other queer people in their lives, or they would be more open to teaching their kids about queer identities, and that would create more acceptance in the community. And I felt like it was worth it to me, because I, I just didn't want anyone to go through what I went through in elementary and middle school. And I could still come home to parents who would love me unconditionally, no matter how much they understood me or agreed with, you know, my identity or, you know, what stage they were and coming to terms with it. I knew that they would always love me and I would always have a home to come to and I would always have a school to go to where I could talk about things. And that was something that a lot of queer youth don't have. So I did feel like, you know, with all of the stuff that I faced, it was still worth it and it was still very important for me. That's amazing. I mean, that's what makes your work so important is is that visibility itself is a catalyst for change. But even on top of that, like you are a voice for a whole generation of folks that aren't heard from often. And so I appreciate you for that very reason. I want to ask you, you mentioned this when you were talking about the book, but I want to ask you specifically, what can we as a community do to help support LGBT youth? And I, I mean, not only in a kind of larger vision kind of way, but also, I mean, specific to the South Asian community, right? Like, I think it's often overlooked in a way that aging is overlooked in our community as well. I think we also, on the other end of that, don't hear a lot from or pause to listen to LGBT youth. What can we as a community do to support you? I think especially within the South Asian community, the number one most important thing is just having conversations about sexuality and gender identity with queer youth, with your kids or with, you know, your community and kind of bringing up some of these issues. Because I think if I had had anyone to talk to about 
the things that I was dealing with, or if I had any information about, you know, queer identities and the queer community while I was facing all the bullying and internalized homophobia, I feel like that would have made the biggest difference, especially coming from someone in the South Asian community, because, you know, then you have that kind of cultural relation. You you kind of feel like you can understand or trust people more. I think that especially in a time where there's still not enough representation and there's still not enough conversation going on, having some kind of positive representation or positive visibility for queer people, whether that is, you know, taking your kids to go see Ikler Kiko Deka, which is an amazing movie yeah. and pretty much the only representation of queer people in Bollywood, or, you know, just showing them news media or stories about queer people um, in the world, or like the fact that India decriminalized homosexuality, you know, things like that, that show some kind of support for queer people. And, you know, just, you can bring that up casually at dinner, be like, oh, did you hear like this happened? And that can kind of signal to kids that you're accepting, you will, if I come out, if I, you know, manage to understand who I am, you'll be receptive to that. You know, you won't throw me out of the house, which is a legitimate worry for a lot of my friends in the South Asian community. I think just, you know, any kind of show of support, any kind of conversation or discussion that you can have around LGBTQ topics will make a world of difference. Absolutely. And I mean, going off of that, this isn't something I was intending to ask, but I thought of it as you were talking. I often deal with uh, when you talk about conversations like that's something that's a a really big goal of this podcast. Like, I wonder for you what you think about, you know, narratives that are centered on queer and transness, because I feel, you know, sometimes in the shifting vision for this show, I face the idea of like, yeah, we're querying Daisy and that's who we're highlighting and that is so much a part of it. But I'm always trying to like talk about folks' work, especially if it's beyond and not incorporating their identity because, yeah, our queerness and our transness is like wrapped up in it. But I feel like it's so important to have narratives also to look at that are beyond and not just centered on our queerness. Is that something that you've thought about as well? Yeah, I think that in a lot of the activism work that I do and a lot of the spaces that I'm in, especially working with larger um LGBTQ organizations that work with queer youth, a lot of the times we have to kind of steer away from using our stories and our work as kind of a way to show, look, like these are queer people, these are queer youth, they're facing a lot of bullying, you know, donate money to this cause and and kind of change the narrative to be more of empowerment and happiness and pride and, you know, a lot of the amazing parts of being queer um, that don't necessarily have to do with the struggles of your identity or even necessarily with your identity as a marginalized identity, but just, you know, positive stories of, I just happen to be queer or trans and I'm also doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. Because that also, I feel like that's almost a better way to show that, you know, queer and trans people are accepted and supported and amazing is is to, to have those positive stories as well as, you know, the stories of struggle and of, you know, activism and of change. Yeah. And I think having that balance is, is very difficult. And I, you know, often do mostly talk about my struggles and the work that I'm doing and the change that needs to happen. And sometimes I need to kind of look at like all the other things that I'm doing in my life, like writing poetry that just happens to be about queerness, but it's also just like, you know, poetry um, or musical theater or like any of the other things that I'm doing and think that, you know, that is also a part of my 
queer and trans experience. Anything that I do is a part of my queer and trans experience. And it's not just the moments that are, are centered around that, those identities that need to be focused on, but, you know, a range of things that could be, you know, really sad and horrifying, but also really amazing and wonderful and happy. You know, it's a larger conversation that a lot of activist communities are having where we need to kind of change the way that we discuss queerness and transness because I think a lot of cis and straight people see the queer and trans community as like a marginalized group of people. And that's all they are. And I think a lot of companies as well, now that we're in pride season, are kind of using rainbow capitalism, you know, making products that are in support of queer people and, you know, donating like 5% to like a, a cause, you know, they're kind of signaling that all they see queer people as is, you know, rainbows and hardship. And I feel like that's not true to who we are. So I feel like we, we should kind of have a balance of those stories, you know, the good and the bad. Yeah, absolutely. Just to wrap up, I want to ask you, this is something I ask all my guests, if you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? And younger self could be anything. It could be a different timeline or yesterday or 10 years ago. Um, If there's anything that you could kind of try to sum up for your younger self, what would it be? I think throughout all of my childhood, I was very scared to explore who I was and to experiment with my gender identity. And as I mentioned, like, you know, I felt the need to hide who I was and put on this kind of mask. And so I think that what I would tell my younger self would be just, it is a lot worse and a lot more difficult to hide who you are and maybe seem normal or seem straight or cis on the outside but not be who you are on the inside, that that's a lot worse than, you know, anything that you could face while being yourself. Because I think throughout this whole journey of, of exploring my gender identity and sexual orientation, I've grappled with safety and the issue that queer um, and trans people of color are the most at-risk group in America. And there is a very real fear of being attacked or being harassed or even like, you know, legally having legislation that invalidates who you are. But I think that for me personally, I would say I would much rather be myself and express who I am for even a short amount of time than live my whole life in hiding, not, you know, expressing who I am, having to wear a mask and be suffocated by that. So that's something that, you know, unfortunately, queer people do have to grapple with. But I think that for me personally, being myself is the most important thing that I can do with my life. Yeah, absolutely. Samir, you're such an inspiration to me, and I know you are to so many people. And I know that's a weird thing to say in the, the queer community because it's kind of like you're just we're just thanking you for being who you are. But I appreciate you. I appreciate you and the work that you're doing. And it's so important. And I'm so glad that we got the chance to speak today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation as well. And just uh, before you leave, if you can uh, plug any way that our listeners can follow you or your work and learn more about what you're up to. Yeah, um, you can visit theempathyalliance.org um, if you want to learn more about the work that I'm doing. And then you can check out Read This, Save Lives on Amazon, the book that I wrote, um, if you want to learn more about how you can support queer and trans students. Amazing. Thank you so much, Samir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word 
and to make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Queering Daisy. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to reach us on social media or drop us an email at queeringdaisy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.